My search for an answer to the question, what is a nation, was sparked by memories of watching people in real life-and-death struggles for their nationhood. But essentially, the search is an inquiry into an idea. In delving into the idea of nation, I feel rather German. The German nation was an idea, a place in the mind, long before it was a geopolitical reality on the map. Here are some stories of the Germans' long march from national idea to national reality. Sunrise, October 18, 1817, in the town of Eisenach, in the heart of the recently formed German Confederation. Church bells ringing. Hundreds of students from every university in the German-speaking lands hurriedly dressed in black uniforms and assembled in the town square. They were members of patriotic fraternities called Burschenschaften, the young men stared up at a fog-shrouded ridge rearing up over the town and watched the morning mist roll away, revealing a medieval castle, the Wartburg. Forming up in procession two by two, they marched toward the castle, waving banners of black, red, and gold, while singing songs that glorified the German fatherland. Each step was heavy with the symbolism of the day. It was the fourth anniversary of the Battle of Leipzig, when Napoleon had finally been driven from German soil. It was also the 300th anniversary year of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to Wittenberg Cathedral's door. Luther had lived at the Wartburg while translating the New Testament into German. The procession took two hours, and when the students arrived at the massive gabled building, they took their places in the Knights Hall to hear speeches and pious calls for freedom and rights. They banqueted in the hall where in medieval times the Teutonic Knights had feasted. They made toasts and pledged allegiance to an unreal German past and dedicated their lives to create the single German Reich in the future. The students then returned to the town for a church service. As the sun set, they climbed another ridge by torchlight. Then, in a final act of symbolism, they ended their celebration of resurgent German nationalism by building a bonfire and throwing books deemed un-German into it. In went a copy of the Napoleonic Code, the laws the emperor had imposed on much of the German-speaking world, guaranteeing the rights of all citizens. In went a copy of Germanomania by the Jewish reformer Saul Asher, a pamphlet that dissected with acerbic wit the pretensions of the German nationalists. The nationalist pretensions were sizable, starting with the fact that there was no German nation. There were German kingdoms, confederations, principalities, duchies, free cities. The German-speaking lands were divided up into 330 different political entities when Napoleon set out to conquer. But they had no single political state called Germany. In the absence of a single political entity by which they could define themselves, people had begun to identify themselves through a single cultural entity, a mythic Germanness. This German culture's origins were in an idealized Christian Middle Ages. It was a world of Teutonic Knights doing heroic deeds in Germany's dark forests. Martin Luther was the real-life hero of this movement, the great man who had changed the destiny of Europe. This mythic land was a place of turbulent soul as opposed to reason. Reason was the foundation of enlightenment, and enlightenment was something French. The German people, the Volk, had a different spirit. Of course, it wasn't true that the Enlightenment was exclusively French. It was an international movement. Immanuel Kant and Moses Mendelssohn, the great German exemplars of the movement, were hardly French in their approach to philosophical problems. 
But that didn't matter to a student of Kant's named Johann Gottfried von Herder. He was convinced that two important concepts were being ignored by his professor in the search for the universal ideas at the core of human existence. The first concept was the individual character of different groups of people. For Herder, who would become a Lutheran pastor, this uniqueness was a product of the land a people inhabited, its physical shape and climate, as well as ties of kinship. Blood and soil bound a nation together. So Herder coined the term nationalism. The nation's deepest manifestation was language. Words and grammar shaped the way a group of people thought. Herder fixed on language in part as a reaction to the dominance of French as the international language of the day. The Prussian king, Frederick the Great, spoke French at court. What was wrong with Germans speaking their own language? The second concept was the role of emotion in human life. In his view, poets, through their feelings rather than philosophers through their abstract rationality, expressed a nation's soul. The poets forged language. They created the myths and folk tales that gave life to evoke. A national state with borders and a government was not necessary to define a people. The poetry, the language, the stories were the essential elements of nationhood. A movement grew around these ideas, and it was called Romanticism. Collections of German fairy tales and folk songs began to appear, like those written by the Brothers Grimm. It was a way of inventing the past as a counter to a frightening present. Napoleon and the French were subjugating one German state after another. Pastor Herder had been a strong, systematic thinker, but he had extolled the subjective and emotional as a way of finding truth. Don't tell the children that. Younger Germans brought their own subjectivity to interpreting his writing, and they were far less systematic. The philosopher wrote on many subjects, but with the French army conquering their land, students focused on Herder's ideas of nationalism and the German Vogue and interpreted them in the narrowest possible way. Herder didn't elevate one people above another. For him, nationalism was a way of understanding the differences between groups. But those who came after him saw no reason for restraining themselves. The German Vogue had qualities that were superior to other nations. By the time Napoleon had been defeated and the Treaty of Vienna had whittled the boundaries of the German-speaking lands down from 300-plus to 39, an emotional patriotism had taken hold of a new generation of German professors. Some had fought the French, and all had experienced the humiliation of being conquered. When the wars ended, many young veterans from middle-class and noble backgrounds resumed their higher education and became avid followers of nationalist professors. In 1815, at the University of Vienna, the first Burschenschaft, or Youth Association, was formed. It was dedicated to patriotism and creating a united Christian Germany. After the march up the Wartburg, the Burschenschaften became increasingly influential in the wider society. Newspapers took up the nationalist ideology. As their influence grew, the societies became more and more radical in their agitation. This alarmed the authorities. Napoleon had been dispatched. The Treaty of Vienna had created a German confederation, with Austria's Prince Metternich effectively acting as chief executive. Metternich looked on with alarm at the Luther idolizing students' increasing influence. The Burschenschaften looked on Metternich with undisguised contempt. Inevitably, the movement became violent. On the morning of March 23, 1819, a young man named Karl Ludwig Sand knocked at the door of playwright August von Kotzbühel's home in Mannheim, not far from Heidelberg. 
the playwright was not in, but Sand seemed pleasant enough and was invited to come back that afternoon when Kotzbühel was expected to be at home. Sand, a member of the Burschenschaften at Jena, was on a suicide mission. August von Kotzbühel was best known in Germany as a playwright, but he also wrote satirical essays and dabbled in history. Among the books burned at Wartburg was his history of the German people. On his way to Mannheim, the young man had stopped at Wartburg Castle and renewed his vows to fight the enemies of the fatherland. Sand returned to Kotzbühel's home that afternoon and, cursing him as a traitor, stabbed the playwright to death, then went outside and turned the knife on himself in front of a crowd that had been drawn to the house by the screams from within. Sand failed to kill himself. The following year, the state finished the job for him. He was beheaded. Metternich took advantage of the incident to squash the Burschenschaften and institute something like a police state in the German-speaking lands. Romantic nationalism, racist and exclusive, fell by the wayside. For a while, more profound forces began to affect Europe. Industrialization, international trade, massive population shifts from the country to the city. Germans were full participants, and they did not need a single nation called Germany to succeed in this new era. The 1848 revolutions in Europe saw Metternich chased out of Vienna in disguise, and the German-speaking land's liberal intelligentsia gather in Frankfurt to devise a German nation made not of myths, but of laws. They had studied the process of creating a modern state out of revolutionary ferment. A constitution needed to be written. Elections were held, delegates selected, and from late spring of 1848, they met in the Polskirche in Frankfurt to try and thrash out the document that would finally unite the various political entities into a single German nation-state. Their reasons for wanting to create this Reich was far from Pastor Herder's. This wasn't about abstract romantic notions of a mystical idea of nationhood. They were much more earthbound. Eliminating all those borders could only help trade and make German businesses stronger. A unified legal code defining citizens and their rights in a polity that stretched from the Rhine to Silesia had to improve efficiency. When the Constitution was approved by the Assembly, a deputation was sent to Prussia's King Frederick Wilhelm IV, and he was invited to become the constitutional monarch of the German state. He declined the honor. Monarchs do not accept their thrones from common people. Creating the German nation would now become a competition between these two poles, the pragmatic and the mythic Germany. This history is better known. For a while, the pragmatic Germany had the upper hand. Following Prussia's victory over France in 1871, Bismarck created the Reich. We think of the Iron Chancellor as a militarist, but his use of military power was always in the service of pragmatic ends war as an extension of politics. Following Germany's defeat in the First World War, the other idea of the German nation gained the upper hand. Hitler used military power to turn fables into reality. War as an extension of mythology. Catastrophic defeat, utter destruction, and then physical dismemberment of Germany. A wall in Berlin and barbed wire across the countryside dividing the nation in two, from 330 political entities to 39 to one, back to two, in less than a century and a half. Can a nation be so mutable, so frequently divisible? Was the German nation fated to exist only as an idea in the speculation of philosophers, enlightened or romantic? History is never static. The Berlin Wall came down. 
In December 1989, a few weeks after the wall was breached and Berlin was reunited, European leaders gathered at a summit. West German Chancellor Kohl put forward a ten-point plan for the reunification of the whole country. Not everyone was pleased. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher is reported to have said, We beat the Germans twice and now they're back. She wasn't being ironic. Her idea of the German nation was fixed by war. But a nation isn't a static thing, even if nationalists like to think their nations have eternal qualities. What is a nation? Is it just an idea, a tonic, an extract for the soul made from roots dug up around your birthplace? Is a nation the legal reality of the internationally recognized boundary, something that shifts with the passage of time? I'm still a bit of a German on this. I stand with Pastor Herder. I think of the nation as a cultural idea. The problem, of course, is that ideas are not tangible. They can be misunderstood, twisted, as happened with Herder's thoughts in Germany. But then, so can treaties that fix boundaries. The philosophical idea of the nation, the legal idea of the nation-state, are equally mutable. Anyway, I think Herder was on to something back in the 18th century when he wrote... No nationality has been solely designated by God as the chosen people of the earth. Above all, we must seek the truth and cultivate the garden of the common good. Hence, no nationality of Europe may separate itself sharply and foolishly, say, with us alone, with us dwells all wisdom. It's a shame some Germans forgot that part of Herder's idea of the nation. It would have saved Germany and Europe from disaster. Today, Germany is at the heart of a European Union that is theoretically, at least, about Herder's vision of equal nations pursuing the common good, although current events are challenging those commitments. But I don't think you can hold that against Pastor Herder. <laughs>